Morning. He is the leader for outreach at the St. Louis Ethical Society and a nationally recognized humanist, speaker, and writer. Hello again, everybody. I just want to start by thanking the DC Labor Chorus for their beautiful, beautiful singing. I am a singer myself, I've been a singer all my life, and I enormously appreciate what you've brought to us this morning. I think you sang when I last had the privilege of speaking for the Washington Ethical Society, so I just, I, I hope they just schedule you every time I come to speak, because I love it so much. Some of you may know that happening right now, just Across the way in Baltimore is the American Ethical Union's annual assembly, the gathering of people from ethical societies from all around the country. And this morning, I came directly from the hotel we were having that assembly in to be here. And let me tell you a little secret. I would much rather be here with you this morning <laughs> than discussing resolutions and the budget at the American Ethical Union annual assembly. During that meditation, when we were asked to examine when we truly felt fully ourselves, I realized that I feel fully myself doing this and being here. Ethical culture leadership is my calling and it is an enormous privilege to share this morning with you. I'm going to talk to you about queer pride today and it is appropriate that we should be talking about queer pride in June because June, as you know, is Pride Month. Despite our president's refusal to acknowledge that fact through a presidential proclamation, it is still Pride Month. He cannot make it go away. And that is the month in which all over the world gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, questioning, and all other sexual and gender minority people celebrate our difference. And today, recognizing the complexities of language involved, I'm going to use the word queer to mean all sexual and gender minority people, understanding that not all people use the terminology that way. I say our difference because, as some of you might know, I am gay myself. I came out of the closet seven years ago after ten years of struggle with my sexuality, ten years in the closet, and one of the first things I did when I came out was march in Boston's Pride Parade. I still remember marching through the streets of that city on a sweltering summer's day, chanting, we're here, we're queer, we're fabulous, come march with us. We kept going up to people standing in the crowd and inviting them to step off the sidewalk and into the streets because we wanted people to participate, not just spectate. And by the end of the march, our little contingent of activists had grown significantly, which is completely against the rules of these marches, but we didn't care. We hold pride in June because, as the popular saying among activists has it, the first gay pride was a riot. We are commemorating an event which occurred in the early morning of Saturday, 28th of June 1969, at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, a police raid which didn't go as planned. 
Now, in 1969, homosexuality was still officially classified as a mental disorder, and the term transgender had only just been coined. In those days, police harassment and abuse of the queer community was extremely overt and legally sanctioned. Many gay bars and clubs were run by the mafia and maintained through payments to the police who took the money and were supposed to look the other way. The Stonewall Inn was one of these and regularly paid off the police so that it could stay in business and serve its marginalized clients. And the Stonewall was popular particularly with drag queens and transgender people and the poorer members of the queer community. But that didn't stop the police from regularly turning up to raid the premises, arresting people and conducting a sweep to, quote, clean up the place, sweeping away people like me, cleaning up the place because people like me made it dirty. I'm actually a very clean person. Like, I shower twice a day, usually. I'm very fastidious. Usually, because these raids were routine, they met with little resistance. People would cooperate to avoid being arrested and publicly shamed for their membership of the queer community. The police would take everyone's information and then take the people who looked to them like they might be cross-dressing into the bathroom to check their sex before arresting people they perceived to be men dressed as women. And this totally invasive and humiliating procedure was all carried out by an arm of the police called the Public Morals Squad. You can't get much more Orwellian than that. Perhaps you can see why many of us aren't thrilled at the idea of police participating in the Pride Parade. But in the early morning of Saturday, June 28th, patrons refused to go along with the regular routine. People refused to give their identification and refused to be led to the bathroom to have their sex organs checked. They took exception to the police officers groping some of the lesbians while frisking them. A crowd began to grow outside as people released from the bar by the police refused to go home and others joined them to see what was up. Then, as police began leading arrestees to the wagons, some of the crowd started singing. We shall overcome. The atmosphere became more intense. Somewhere, an officer shoved a trans woman who struck back with her purse. People started throwing pennies and beer bottles at the police vehicles. One lesbian woman who had been hit and manhandled as the police tried to lead her to the wagon called out to the crowd, why don't you guys do something? And people did do something. And there was a riot. Michael Fader, who participated that night, describes the feeling in the air. We felt that we had freedom at last, or freedom at least to show that we demanded freedom. We weren't going to be walking meekly in the night and letting them shove us around. It's like standing your ground for the first time and in a really strong way. And that's what caught the police by surprise. There was something in the air, freedom a long time overdue, and we were going to fight for it. It took different forms, but the bottom line was we weren't going to go away, and we didn't. Or, 
as historian David Carter reports an anonymous participant saying in his book, when did you ever see a fag fighting back? Now times were a-changing. Tuesday night was the last night for bullshit. There are many amazing moments recounted by participants in the Stonewall riots. Homeless queer kids fighting the police tooth and nail for their one only safe space in town. An impromptu chorus line singing and doing high kicks in front of the tactical police force who had arrived to disperse the crowd. Large crowds of protesters chasing the police through the crooked streets of Greenwich Village. For once, we were chasing them, not the other way around. But the most moving image for me is from the day after the riot, when, according to those who were there, large numbers of people were openly walking the streets around Stonewall, showing their affection for each other. And this moment, the historians tell us, sparked a new wave of queer activism. And it is certainly why we have pride in June. Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, proposed by longtime activist Craig Rodwell and held on June 28, 1970, to commemorate the anniversary of the riots, with coordinated marches in LA and Chicago, cemented June as the month of pride. And one of my favorite photos of that period of time is from the fourth annual Liberation Day Parade, where you can see at the front Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, both trans and gender non-conforming people and people of color who were some of the first people to participate and lead these parades and protests. Why do we call it pride, though? The short answer is that a group of activists who worked on the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade popularized the use of the term, particularly Brenda Howard, who is sometimes known as the mother of pride. But the deeper answer is that for decades, the overriding tactic used to control and demean queer people has been shame. The idea that there is something inherently disgusting, sinful, or wrong about the way we are. This is not to say we haven't been oppressed in other ways. Throughout history, sexual and gender minorities have been forced to face some of the most extreme and violent discrimination and oppression possible. We've been fired from our jobs, particularly when we work with children, and thrown out of our homes, particularly when we are children. We have been rejected by our churches, our communities, and our families. We have been sentenced to hard labor, subjected to what is called corrective rape, where people are raped in order to change their sexual or gender identity. Sent to, quotes, conversion therapy, a form of psychological or physical torture designed to cure homosexuality. And condemned to chemical castration. We have been imprisoned, we have been tortured, and we have been killed. But to my mind, the most deeply damaging thing which has been done to queer people is the constant cultural messaging suggesting that we are unworthy creatures, inherently flawed and disgusting. 
Yes, we have been oppressed, but we have also been shamed. And that is in some senses worse, because when you are ashamed of yourself, you are your own oppressor. When you learn to hate yourself, that can be more difficult than other people hating you. You build a prison for yourself, and those can be particularly hard to get free from. Self-hatred sucks the zest from your life, draining the juice of your inner self, leaving you just a shell. I know, because I fought it for 10 years of my life. And that's why Stonewall was different. In contrast to some of the typical queer activism which was occurring in the 60s before Stonewall, in which participants were instructed to wear suits and dresses and look, quotes, normal and unthreatening, hand-holding and cross-dressing were strictly forbidden. On Christopher Street in 1969, queer people asserted our power in a queer way with the spontaneous chorus lines and the exaggerated pantomime mocking the police and the leadership of trans people and drag queens and homeless queer youth at the forefront, this was not a polite call for participation in normal straight society. Be nice to us because we're just like you. This was a fierce explosion of anger, energy and pride. Pride in ourselves. We were finding a way to celebrate our difference rather than to fit ourselves into the already existing mold. And that is why Stonewall was important and that is what pride is all about. An unapologetic reveling in our own transgressive identities. A discovery of the power of queer selfhood. In increasing self-acceptance, we were discovering our zest for life. Why is it that the world hates us so much? Hates us to death sometimes? When you think about it, it's a provocative question. Because how does being gay or lesbian or trans or intersex or queer in any way affect anybody else? When I walk down the street holding the hand of my boyfriend, my imaginary boyfriend for now, <laughs> or or if a trans person simply walks down the street being trans, why is that worthy of violence and abuse? There are many possible answers for this, but I think the simplest single answer is this. We mess with gender. Gender is one of the central cultural constructs of human life a totemic set of cultural categories which has defined how people interact probably for all of human history. While not all human cultures have rigid gender roles and while many cultures throughout history and today have conceived of gender very differently to how we tend to think of it in the West and in the United States, it's generally true that for most people, for most of history, the categories of male and female have dominated the organization of social life. Men are expected to act one way and women another. Men do one set of jobs, wear one type of clothes, have one set of mannerisms, speak in one kind of way, and women another. Men are afforded some spheres of influence and power and women others. 
And obviously men only have sex with women and women only have sex with men. All across the world, for much of human history, cultures, societies, religions, professions, and political systems have relied on clear distinctions between men and women. And queer people paint a huge, beautiful rainbow all over that restrictive picture. Whether we are same-sex loving and find sexual and romantic satisfaction with people of the same sex or gender, as lesbian, gay, and bisexual people do, whether our gender doesn't match the sex we are assigned at birth as experienced by transgender people, or whether our sexual anatomy doesn't fit traditional definitions of female or male as with intersex people, all queer people transgress the neat gender binary of male and female. And that transgression of a powerful, socially constructed category has often been seen as sufficiently dangerous and subversive as to require violence in response. And this is why I think when violence occurs against a queer person, it is very often accompanied by sexist slurs and, quotes justifications. Many of the derogatory slurs used to describe queer people are directly referencing the way queer people are seen to transgress gender norms. Pansy, sissy, girly boy, queen, dyke, butch. All these slurs rely for their power on assumptions about male and female and how it is appropriate for men and women to act. Transgender people who are seen to transgress the gender binary most directly and severely are subject to the most brutal retaliation. This is also, incidentally, why all the people under the LGBTQIA umbrella belong together. Contrary to some, I am ashamed to say, mostly white gay men who question whether trans issues and the fight for recognition of intersex people are really part of the same struggle as the fight for lesbian, gay, and bisexual liberation. They are part of the same struggle because the oppressive force which restricts the life opportunities of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, and other queer people is the same our cultural assumptions about sex and gender. The truth is, though, that those cultural assumptions about sex and gender oppress all people, not just queer people. When society puts men and women into boxes, that saps the zest from all of us, whether we are queer or not. Every straight woman who has ever wanted to pursue a traditionally male career, or every young straight boy who has ever wanted to explore fashion or any other area of life which is traditionally thought of as female, is harmed by rigid gender norms as well. When we establish some areas of life as male and others as female, and then assign children to one of those boxes at birth, it limits the opportunities of every person. It makes all of our lives less zesty. And that's why queer liberation is good for everybody. Everybody benefits when we begin to break those boxes of male and female, opening up possibilities for living. 
And this is one of the major reasons I am proud to be a queer person and part of the queer liberation movement. We have, by challenging traditional notions of gender and sex, opened up huge opportunities for everyone else to live freer and more zesty lives. You are welcome. <laughs> yes, you can applaud that. To give you a simple example of what I mean, everyone has more options for socially acceptable clothing today because queer people blazed a trail. From women wearing pantsuits to men wearing rompers. Have you been following the excitement over the romp him, the romper for men? I actually bought one and I will be wearing it to platform at the Ethical Society of St. Louis at some point. I promised my members, they begged me to do it. So I will send you photos of my peach chambray romp him when I get it uh, before August. They promised me it's going to ship. Well, I promise you, queer people got there first. I'm not saying we necessarily wore it better, but we almost certainly wore it first. And that is extremely important. Okay, we wore it better. We wore it so much better. But it goes much deeper than that because gender presentation is about so much more than what we wear. Our assumptions about gender pervade every area of life and by challenging and deconstructing them, by recognizing gender as a socially constructed category rather than a fact of the universe, we allow everyone to experiment with and explore their gender much more freely than before. Queerness allows us to take control of how we wish to express our gender rather than allowing the social category to control how we act. And that is incredibly freeing. Whether it is leather men exploring forms of hypermasculinity, gender non-conforming people exploring androgyny and agenderness, or trans people reminding us that sex and gender are not the same, queer people are constantly asking us to rethink gender and to deconstruct the oppressive framework which has kept so many of us in a straight jacket for so long. A straight jacket. Did you see that? Did you see what I did there? We have also revolutionized sex and romance. We queer people have made sex massively better for all of you. Or at least we have opened up the possibility for you to have more fulfilling and ethical and zesty sex lives. I can't guarantee that all of you are getting it. But we, we, we have the possibility there. While it is a damaging stereotype that queer people are obsessed with sex, I think it is true that because we are a movement of sexual and gender minorities, how we have sex, who we have sex with, and whether we choose or want to have sex at all, these are all matters which are central to our movement and have been so since our movement began. And since that beginning, queer people have championed sexual liberation. Not libertinism, the idea that you should do whatever you like regardless of the consequences, but liberation from old and stultifying strictures about what is right and wrong, pure and impure, or nice and nasty in sex and romance. Queer activists have been saying for decades that when it comes to sex, as long as you have the consent of everyone involved, that is your business and your business alone. 
We champion sexual freedom and openness, and partly due to our efforts, it's now much more acceptable and easy for people to engage in sexual exploration. Having multiple sex partners without getting married to any of them is now much more accepted than it was before. Having a partner who journeys with you through life, who is your romantic companion, but sleeping with other people as well, with the consent of everyone involved, is much more common. Kink culture is coming out of the closet a bit more, recognized increasingly as just another way that people can enjoy each other and less as something shameful and wrong. And this is all a good thing. I want to stress this point because I think our cultural taboos about sexual expression and romance run very, very deep. Opening up avenues of sexual expression and exploration for people is an unmitigated good for the human species. To be a bit philosophical about this, and I am a philosopher, when human beings pursue sexual satisfaction with others who are also looking for that, that is a net increase in human happiness. And that is good. It's one of the most simple ethical equations ever. And one which most traditional religious moral systems completely mess up. I'm not quite sure why it seems to be so difficult for them. But luckily, we queer people have cleared it up. Sex is good. Sex is fun. Sex, at its best, is a form of creative expression and a demonstration of our commitment to another person's happiness. Queer people have pulled back the veil on sex and romance a bit, and that is a good thing for everybody. Finally, we've begun to change how people view family. Clearly, the increasing commonality of families with two dads or two moms is a big deal, something which has changed the face of parenting forever. But we have changed the concept of family in a more profound way, I think. There is a phrase that I first learned when I started hanging out with queer people at university, which is used a lot in our circles, family of choice. It's the idea that family can be more than just a bond of blood or heritage, but something that we choose for ourselves, pulling together closest to us those people who care about us most. This idea, which surely predates the queer movement, has particular resonance for us because so many of us have been rejected by our families of origin. When so many queer youth, and particularly trans youth, face a hostile home environment or even are thrown out of the home altogether, the need to create alternative support structures becomes particularly strong. And many of us create our own families. We have a long history of shaping our families for ourselves. And in so doing, we have opened up the definition of family for everybody. So for me, the queer movement is not primarily about equality or even about full participation in society as it is now. It's about freedom. And not just freedom for queer people, but freedom for all people from the social assumptions, attitudes, and prejudices which have harmed us all. The freedom to live a life which expresses our full selves unapologetically and with enthusiasm. The freedom to live with zest. I love that word. I'm just going to say it all the time now. That makes queerness, in my mind, a distinctively humanist tendency. 
queer liberation, like ethical humanism, is focused on people over tradition, on creativity over what is normal, on embracing life rather than denying it. I'm proud to be queer because we have taken on one of the most limiting and oppressive systems ever created by the human species, and we are winning. But mostly, I'm proud to be queer because in the face of extraordinary prejudice and pain, we have found a way not just to accept ourselves, but celebrate our uniqueness and demand that the world reshape itself so that it can celebrate us too. We are, by our example, helping everyone live with greater zest. And that makes me proud to be queer. Thank you very much.